Well, thanks, June and Huey, and good morning, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open, and let's pray as we ask God to help us as we look at his word this morning. Our gracious God, we thank you and praise you for this moment that we can uh, come before you and hear you speak to us through your word that you have given through your apostles so that we might know you and so that we might live in relationship with you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. And we pray this morning that you'd continue to grow us to know Jesus better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I, uh, I once was an insurance salesman. And uh, possibly your opinion of me has just uh, kind of taken a dive. But can I say, when I commenced work, uh, I was trained in the various insurance and investment products that I was supposed to sell. And for about the first six months, uh, I contacted past colleagues and sold them a particular insurance and investment product that I had been led to believe was very good. And as time went on, I I began to understand the various products better, and I began to realise that the particular product that I had been urged to sell was, in fact, not that good at all. But it did pay me and my manager a very good commission. Now, the more I understood the product, uh, the more uncomfortable I became, to the point that I just stopped selling that particular product. Well, I didn't just stop selling that particular product, but, in fact, I went and revisited every one of my initial clients and I returned to them my commission and explained to them the downsides of the particular product that I'd sold them. I never sold one of those products again. I had completely lost confidence in it. And can I say, it's very hard to defend or promote a product that is flawed and that you don't have any confidence in. It's hard to defend something that you can't trust. Well, can I just say... uh, Confidence is the overarching theme of our series in Luke this term. Hopefully you've been hearing that. Uh, Confidence specifically in who Jesus is and in the gospel message that he proclaims. And remember that uh, Luke, right from the very beginning of the opening of his gospel, he set out to give his readers certainty about Jesus. And that certainty or that confidence is important given that Jesus is actually claiming to be the son of God who has come to bring salvation and forgiveness to a world that is facing God's judgment. And it's a message that Jesus is calling his followers to declare to all nations. And so if you're not confident in the the gospel, if you're not confident in Jesus, you won't stand firm in that gospel when you are under pressure and you won't share it with others if you're not convinced of the goodness of the gospel. But Luke continues to assure us that we can have complete confidence in Jesus and his gospel. And so we might ask, how is he doing that in the passage that's in front of us today? What is it about these arguments around the the Jewish Sabbath that will give us confidence in Jesus and his gospel of salvation? Well, the further we read on in Luke's gospel, uh, the more we realise that Jesus had plenty of opposition Uh, He knows plenty about what opposition can look like. And now, of course, already that opposition is on the rise here in Luke. Uh, We saw, remember, a couple of weeks ago, the Pharisees' questioning of Jesus' authority to forgive sins when he was healing the paralytic. Uh, Last week, we saw the Pharisees and scribes grumbling because Jesus was hanging out with sinners. Today, that opposition intensifies over Jesus' attitudes and actions on the Sabbath. 
And Luke wants us to see that those who oppose Jesus are wrong and that the product of Jesus, the gospel, is good and trustworthy. See, we don't need to shrink back or to hide or to apologise for the gospel, even when people oppose it. And so today, Jesus exposes the foolishness and failure of self-made religion. And he exposes the hypocrisy and harm of self-righteousness. And so let's just take a a closer look at the first incident there in chapter 6 of Luke. So chapter 6, Luke, uh, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of corn, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, clearly, opposition to Jesus is growing, especially here amongst the Pharisees. Uh, the, uh, remember, we, might, we said a couple of weeks ago, the upstanding, they were the upstanding religious elite of their day. And we've heard, haven't we, that they are the good guys of society. They were the outstanding keepers of God's Old Testament law. But their attitudes towards Jesus is changing. And you might remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the paralytic, when he demonstrated to them that he had authority, the authority of God on earth to forgive sins, notice again what there, you can just look back there to five, chapter 5, verse 26, see how they responded back there? And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so at this point, they're looking at what Jesus is saying and doing with a reasonably positive eye, but then Jesus starts to make some wrong moves. That is, he started out hanging out with the wrong kind of people, uh, Jewish traders and other sinners, and they didn't like it. He didn't make his disciples fast like the true religious people should, and they didn't like it. And now it seems they're keeping an eye on him. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were strolling through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they're being watched, and then they're confronted by a group of Pharisees. Now, the concern for the Pharisees is that Jesus' disciples are picking and eating what is probably corn. I know we talk about wheat uh, in the, uh, the kids' talk. Maybe it was wheat. Maybe We don't really know, but it could have been one of those two things. doesn't seem like such a big deal, really, does it? However, the problem is not eating, but working. It's the Sabbath. And Old Testament law made it clear that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees, picking heads of grain with your hand was considered reaping, harvesting. And so his disciples were breaking the law and Jesus did nothing to stop them. And so the problem is, it was the Pharisees' law, not God's law, that was being broken. In their zeal to obey every letter of God's law, the Pharisees had actually added hundreds of qualifying conditions to God's commands not to work on the Sabbath. And so it was true that reaping and was working and it was prohibited on the Sabbath, but it was the Pharisees and scribes who decided that picking a head of corn was reaping, not God. And so the Pharisees, because of their additional rules, had turned the Sabbath into a misery. They were the politically correct of their day. And so notice that Jesus goes straight onto the front foot here. He actually doesn't try to pacify them. He shows them the failure of their political correctness. And see, what does he do? Well, Jesus answers their charge by reminding the Pharisees of the time that King David 
and his men were fleeing from Saul. They were desperate for food, and so they ate the bread that was only meant for the priests. And his point is that King David had clearly broken the law. It was a worse case than this one, and yet David wasn't condemned for it. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees that they have missed the point of the, of the Sabbath. With all their extra requirements, they expect even more than God himself. But actually, they've missed something even more important than that. That is, you've failed to recognise who I am. See verse 5? And Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, just as King David ruled as God's king over his people Israel, so now Jesus has come to rule over God's eternal kingdom. And just as we saw in, in chapter 5, verse 24, that Jesus is the Son of Man who has the authority of God to forgive sins, well, so he is the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, which means that everything that the Sabbath laws are meant to mean find their fulfilment in Jesus. See, God's law is there to serve the kingdom of God, not the other way around. And so the self-made religion of the Pharisees is foolish and it fails to please God or care for God's people. But notice what Jesus has done. He doesn't apologise. He doesn't actually try and diffuse the situation. Oh, sorry, sorry, got that wrong. He actually calls out their foolishness, their failure to recognise who he is. Don't you understand that I am Lord of the Sabbath? And can I say, that's an incredibly provocative statement given the point of the Sabbath. Now, before we go on to the, the next little section, which occurs on another Sabbath in verse 6 there, uh, let's just be clear about what the Sabbath was all about. I think the kids' talk has already helped us enormously there. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you know what the Sabbath is, right? Uh, it's one of the Ten Commandments given through Moses. We've just read uh, a repeat of them in, in Deuteronomy 5. But God had commanded Israel to work for six days and then have a day off every seventh day to rest and worship. It was a reflection of the pattern that God had set up in creation. And so Genesis 2 tells us that God made the world in six days and then on the seventh day he rested or ceased from all his labour. Now the command to rest actually recognises the human need for physical refreshment. And the expectation of, of worship or remembrance is to remind us that God is our creator and we depend on him for our very lives. Now the first thing to notice is, is that rest then is the climax of God's creative activity. Now I've got Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 on the screen there. Uh, here is where the idea of rest on the seventh day comes from that gets called the Sabbath. In verse 2 of Genesis, of Genesis 2, uh, I'm going to start at verse 2, uh, sorry, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So human beings may be created in God's image as the pinnacle of God's creative work, but they are not the climax of his work. We're not the aim of his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy 
That is, he set it apart as the fulfilment of all that he had created to stop the work and rest in the blessing of his creation. So the aim of God's work was rest and blessing in relationship with all that he had made. It was a day of blessing and goodness and enjoyment of rest. And notice that there was no end to God's seventh day rest. I mean, every other day in, the, in creation or period of, of creation was rounded off with the words, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, but not with the seventh. This is the day when not only God, but all humanity would enter God's rest and enjoy all the benefits of his good creation with him forever. And so the point is that the rest of God is not simply a day off work. It's a state of living under the blessing and good purposes of God. But that was almost, sorry, that was all lost when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God and were expelled from the Garden of Eden and effectively were expelled from the blessing of God's rest. See, God's rest still remained, but we were cut off from it because of our sin. See, here's the cause of the human dilemma, the cause of our restlessness. Our culture is caught up in a whirlwind of confusion about who we are. Everywhere there are people trying to work out their identity, their reason for existence, their purpose or meaning in life, their sense of worth. But the Sabbath was a reminder that we were made for God, that we will not find our sense of being or fulfilment unless we find it in God. And so God designed the Sabbath and embedded it into Jewish culture so that once a week for a whole day, I stop work to remind me that I'm here for God, that this life is not all there is, that we were made for something much greater. And so the Sabbath points forward to that great day in eternity where once again, God's people will enjoy his rest with their creator. And here's Jesus saying, the Sabbath was made for me. I am Lord of the Sabbath. The eternal paradise and blessing of God's rest is found in me, Jesus says. And so Luke wants to give us confidence to oppose the foolishness of those who oppose Jesus. Because every human philosophy, religious or otherwise, that sets itself up against God will only lead you down a dead end. Well, not only is self-made religion a foolish failure, but human self-righteousness will always lead to hypocrisy and harm. This uh, next encounter that Jesus has, um, he's actually asking the question that the Pharisees normally ask. Uh, He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Verse 6. Let me pick it up there, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And so here's a man who has turned up to synagogue and he has a withered hand. It's a great day to be there because Jesus is here uh, and his reputation as a healer precedes him. Uh, You can imagine the religious leaders kind of grabbing the man and bringing him over to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, this is Jim. We're so glad that you're here. He really struggles to keep a job and to feed his family because his arm's so badly withered. Will you please help him? 
This could be an occasion of great joy, couldn't it? But look at what actually happens in verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Notice that there's no question as to whether he could heal, but rather whether he would. It's staggering, isn't it? I mean, they're more concerned about their self-righteous rules than actually seeing what God is doing and rejoicing in it. They actually see Jesus as a menace. And so Jesus takes the man and once again he confronts them in verses 8 and following. See verse 8. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. See, the Pharisees actually have no compassion for this man. They would prefer he remain in his misery so as to maintain their self-righteous rules. And they would prefer to bring Jesus to his knees rather than bow their knee. To the Lord of the Sabbath. See, here's a picture of Jesus' goodness and love, his mercy and grace, his utter perfection. The healing of this man was a picture of the rest that Jesus brings. The Sabbath was meant to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no more sickness or pain, no sorrow, no sadness. And this is a picture of the rest that we're meant to have. But there's no compassion for this man by the Pharisees. Just a politically correct obsession over the keeping of their man-made rules. It's a picture, if you like, of the harmful hypocrisy of those who righteously oppose the Lord Jesus. That is, they'd prefer to leave this man locked in his misery rather than recognising the loving rule of Jesus. Jesus is not the fraud. They are. And as as is so often the case when our hearts are exposed, as Jesus has exposed their hearts, they actually respond with even greater hatred. Look at verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now the word described as fury here means an irrational anger or even a, a pathological rage. There's nothing rational about the way Jesus' enemies think about him. And that's still the case today, isn't it? which is all the more reason why the good news actually needs to be heard and lived by us. The world needs to hear the truth about Jesus. The world needs to know the beauty and love and goodness of Jesus. Luke wants us to have confidence, even when Christianity is opposed. You see, now a a crucial moment has come for the future of Jesus' mission. Clearly the growth of the gospel is not going to come from the establishment. It's not going to come from the authorised religious leaders. And so in verses 12 to 16, Luke shows us Jesus' plan for getting the gospel out to all nations. See there in verse, uh, verse 12. In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose for them twelve whom he named apostles. See, Jesus chooses 
12 of his followers to effectively become the leaders of a new people of God, a new Israel, if you like. As there had been 12 tribes of Israel, so now Jesus chooses 12 of his disciples, whom he sets apart as apostles. Now, apostles just means uh, the sent ones or messengers, but they are sent specifically by Jesus to declare his gospel, his good news of repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations is the way Jesus puts it himself in chapter 24. See, these are ordinary men, fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, but they're sent with an extraordinary message, forgiveness, mercy, healing, hope, freedom, joy, goodness, beauty, all the things that our world wants to keep promising but can never deliver. They were the men upon whom Jesus built his church and he continues to build it. As his followers today, don't shrink back in fear or uncertainty when the gospel is opposed. The gospel will continue to grow and it will change lives for the better. Wherever, wherever followers of Jesus like you and me hold fast to our confidence in Jesus and his gospel, even in the face of hostility, we will see it grow. See, Jesus is always a fork in the road, isn't he? You either accept him or you reject him. And there's not a third option, by the way. You are either for him or against him. There's a a word thrown around today, far too loosely, I think. Uh, People talk about being triggered by something, uh, an event, uh, an image, something someone says, etc., but I think people use it far too loosely to shut down certain actions or people. But there is a sense that Jesus is a triggering figure. When you bring him up in the office or on the work site or at uni or at the school gate, you might trigger a response that is less than friendly or positive. But Luke wants to show that we can have confidence in Jesus and his gospel message. His aim is that we might have such confidence in Jesus that we can oppose the fraud and foolishness of those who oppose Jesus. We're never to do it in anger or hatred. Never. But in love. But we also don't need to shrink back and hide or apologise. Our product is good and trustworthy. And so when you hear Christians being called bigots and haters and extremists, and whatever other adjectives they can find, remember that they describe Jesus as the devil himself. But he was the very one, remember, who laid down his life on a cross to pay the penalty for the sin of those who called him those things. And remember, as he hung falsely accused, dying on the cross, he prayed to his Father in heaven. What did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. How will you react to Jesus? It is not a hypothetical question because the Bible says that each one of us have to make that decision. Can I say, you can have great confidence if you put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.
Father, we thank you that there is a place in our world where we can find rest for our souls. Father, thank you that in Jesus we can have that rest, we can have that forgiveness, that salvation, that goodness that comes from those who know you. And so, Father, please give us great confidence that to trust in and to live for Jesus is the very best thing that we can do in the whole of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.